everyone, and welcome to this um, ATS podcast on a thoracic surgeon's perspective on surgical resection for early stage non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, my name is Matthew Triplett. I'm a pulmonologist and a research scientist at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center and the University of Washington in Seattle, uh, Washington. And I'm the medical director of both our lung cancer screening program and the lung cancer early detection and prevention clinic here. Uh, so today we're going to talk a little bit with a thoracic surgeon about surgical resection, which is great. Um, so I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Farhud Farja. He's a thoracic surgeon at the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance and the University of Washington. He's also an associate professor of surgery at the University of Washington and holds an endowed chair for lung cancer research in that department. Thanks, Farhud, for, for joining us today. I'm really excited about this chance to have a conversation a little bit about your perspective on surgical resection for non-small cell lung cancer. I think this will be a very cool topic and really high yield for most of our listeners who are probably pulmonologists who do lung cancer um, as part of their practice, but not their whole practice. So the first question I have for you is before we kind of talk about surgical specifics, I kind of wanted to hear about your thoughts broadly about the utility of surgery in the case of patients with early stage non-small cell lung cancer, at least clinical non-small cell lung cancer. So based on the data we have, you know, what do you think about in terms of how surgery compares to SBRT, for example, for potentially resectable cancers? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to share uh, at least my perspectives and a thoracic surgical perspective on this topic. And I agree, it's a, I'm very interested in it. I think it's an important one. As far as surgery goes for early stage lung cancer, I think the, the short answer is that it remains a standard of care. There's very little head-to-head -head comparative data of SBRT versus radiation, and what little we have has pretty significant limitations. That being said, um, I think what we know from single-arm studies is that SBRT offers pretty good local control rates above 90%. And it certainly has a very minimal impact on patient, usually delivered over the course of three to five days um, within uh, a week or two. Um, and so for inoperable patients, it's a, it's a really valuable tool. And, and it's also an important tool for those patients that have a strong preference against surgery. Now, there's some things we don't need a trial to know. Um, and so that brings me to the advantages of surgery that are, that are not debatable. Surgery offers a tissue diagnosis if one doesn't already exist. T you know, surgery offers intraoperative lymph node staging, uh, and, and surgery gives um, information about margin status. Now, whether or not that translates into different recurrence rates and overall survival, that's what we need a trial for. But those are very clearly um, advantages uh, to surgery over radiation. And the only other issue um, or point that I, uh, I bring up with patients when I talk to them when this question comes up is surgery is not impossible after SBRT, but it, it, it's a lot more challenging. So particularly in the high-risk patients, that's a critical decision because if it was high-risk initially and they get SBRT and then you have to bring them back, then that's an even higher risk. So those are some of the nuances. Those, these are actually some of the things that I talk about with patients when I see them um, regarding early uh, surgery for early stage lung you know, one of the things that I wanted to bring up too around surgical candidacy is I think a lot of us pulmonologists think in terms of kind of rules of thumb or heuristics around this AJCC staging of 3A being the highest resectable stage and that kind of being a fine or permanent dividing line between surgical and non-surgical for 3B. Is that really true? And is that how you think of kind of staging appropriateness for surgery in terms of TNNM staging? 
Yes, stage 3A lung cancer is a really complex decision-making aspect of lung cancer care and and management. So um, it turns out in rare circumstances, actually stage 4 is the highest resectable stage. And generally stage 3B, most people would consider unresectable. So there are definitely caveats to this issue of stage 4. The, the stage four patient that I'm speaking of is extraordinarily rare, and they usually have an isolated metastasis. And if that patient were to undergo extensive staging, and by that I mean a CT, a PET scan, an MRI, and invasive mediastinal staging, and after all of that, there's no evidence of nodal disease, an isolated metastasis, and a, and a multidisciplinary team has, has decided how to manage that patient, oftentimes it can be a strategy of a systemic therapy first, followed by lung resection and local therapy of the isolated metastasis. On rare occasions, stage four is the highest stage that's resectable. So it sounds like in terms of consideration, we should really be considering these higher stage patients in a multidisciplinary setting, not just using that 3A cutoff. Absolutely. Agreed. Thinking specifically about one of the key issues with staging that I think comes up at the interface between pulmonologists who may do some of the invasive mediastinal staging and surgeons is this idea on N2 disease essentially being kind of ipsilateral mediastinal disease. How, how do you think about a patient who has either suspected or confirmed N2 disease and whether that's a resectable patient or not? Yeah, this is a, again, a very challenging aspect of lung cancer care and think there is a lot of variability and practice patterns that's been demonstrated across the nation. But here's how I think about it. Um, if you if you look at the NCCN guidelines, for someone who has a non-bulky single station N2, surgery after induction therapy is one treatment option for patients. That's recommended by practice guidelines. The other alternative is induction chemoradiation therapy followed by, I'm sorry, not induction, but definitive chemoradiation therapy followed by immunotherapy. It's in this sense where there's a lot of practice variation. There's not a lot of controversy about multi-station N2 and bulky lymph nodes with some variability in how that's defined. Some people say greater than two centimeters, some say greater than three centimeters, but there's a lot less controversy that that kind of N2 disease or stage 3A disease, it, it should be managed. Um, non-operative. Additional caveats when I think about this and when I, when I say I think about this is really our practice pattern at the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance is that we stage these p- patients um, with a CT scan, a PET scan. If we have clinical concerns for N2, we get a brain MRI and we do invasive mediastinal staging. And one nuance of invasive mediastinal staging highlighting, again, that interface between pulmonary medicine and thoracic surgery, two fields that tackle this, um, this aspect of the lung cancer work up is the thoroughness of the mediastinal evaluation. And, and my view on this is that the sampling should include at least one contralateral and two ipsilateral mediastinal lymph nodes, because that gives you the minimum information to distinguish between single station N2, multi-station N2, and N3 disease. And, and so assuming all these things have happened, meaning CT, PET, brain MRI, thorough invasive mediastinal staging, then that patient would go to tumor board to get the consensus opinion of the entire um, oncology group 
Uh, and in, in that scenario that I, I think an induction therapy followed by surgery is a very reasonable option. There, there's another nuance that I throw in there because I, you know, I, I think it's important to be pragmatic and, and this is at the risk of sounding self-serving. So I think the operation needs to be done by a board certified thoracic surgeon with a focused practice in thoracic oncology and one who participates in a national quality improvement clinical registry. And the reason I say that is some of the controversy around N2 has to do with the trials. And if you look at the trials, the operative mortality rates in many of the trials is particularly high. And if you have a high mortality rate, that's going to cause a survival detriment right off the bat. So there is evidence out there that board certified thoracic surgeons are equivalent have better short or long-term outcomes compared to generalists. And we know from national clinical registry data platforms like the Society of Thoracic Surgeons General Thoracic Database that operative mortality rates for a lobectomy can be as low as one to 2% for that, that cohort of surgeons and centers and patients. Whereas when you look across the nation, those mortality rates can be higher, upwards of anywhere from three to five percent. Uh, and so if a patient or a group of providers are in an area where they don't have access to not only the surgeon, but the center, then, then it might make sense to actually pursue a non-operative pathway for single station, non-bulky N2 disease. Good to know. And I, I like that you mentioned the ambiguity around the term bulky lymphadenopathy, which is thrown around a lot. I mean, what, what are you thinking about when you're thinking about whether a quote unquote bulky or a large conglomeration of lymph nodes in a certain station disqualifies a patient for surgery? Like, does it matter whether it is we're talking about subcrinal station seven versus the station fours and the ipsilateral mediastinum? Like what uh, size and position really matters to you for surgery? The, the, you know, the, the sides I, I honestly waffle on, and that's why I appreciate tumor board because it really, dip, it, there is a lot of variability, but it's within that two to three centimeter range. So after, when it gets above two centimeters, I start to become uncomfortable and above three, it's definitely a no fly zone in terms of surgery. As for position, that matters less to me, assuming that the patient has undergone thorough invasive mediastinal staging. And the reason I say that is because bulky single station N2, I think of as being a risk factor for multi-station N2 or N3 disease. So the, whether it's a 4R lymph node or a subcranial lymph node, those are resectable lymph nodes. So the position doesn't matter. As long as we can be confident that a 2.1 centimeter lymph node is, is truly a single station source of disease. And, and then position doesn't matter. As we're kind of on this topic, thinking about kind of the interface between pulmonary and thoracic surgery in terms of invasive mediastinal staging, and I'm happy to kind of comment on this as well, for our physicians out there that don't have as, uh, you know, access to a multidisciplinary team when they're making some of these initial decisions, in what clinical cases is it most helpful for you as the surgeon to have the patients potentially have undergone an EBUS, to have undergone an attempt mediastinal staging prior to, you know, your own uh, interventions, such as, you know, a mediastinoscopy or resection plus mediastinoscopy, or just not doing the mediastinoscopy? So again, it's, it's a collaboration and, and I'm lucky to work with many great pulmonologists, including yourself. And, um, and, and so this collaborative relationship really um, greases the wheels for, for some of these things. So I think about invasive staging based on the NCCN and ACCP guidelines. 
I think they, for the most part, overlap when it comes to indications, which essentially are a central tumor, a tumor greater than three centimeters, enlarged mediastinal lymph nodes, or FDG uptake in mediastinal or ipsilateral hyolymph nodes. Those are the indications. So who does the procedure? It doesn't matter. It's whoever can get the patient moving faster through their workup and care delivery. And, and I think that right now, the guidelines mostly say that if for instance, an EBUS is performed and it's non-diagnostic than to do repeat invasive mediastinal staging. That does mirror the ASTER trial. And that's that's one aspect of, of care that I've approached where if an EBUS, whether I've performed it or someone else has performed it and it's non-diagnostic, then, then I would follow that up with a mediastinoscopy. And if, and if a patient comes to me without invasive mediastinal staging, but they have an indication for it, then I'm, again, very pragmatic about that. For instance, at the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, and at, at another campus with University of Washington Medical Center at Northwest Campus, the yield of EBUS um, by my pulmonary colleagues, um, including yourself, is better. I think your equipment's better. And in at least one of these settings, we have rapid on-site psychology. I don't have rapid on-site cytology in the operating room. And, and so it, it curbs my enthusiasm for performing EBUS because I like to do invasive mediastinal staging in the same setting as the planned resection. I think that's efficient for the patient. It's one anesthetic. And so I, I will perform a mediastinoscopy on the, on the day of the planned operation if they have an indication and they have not had an EBUS. Um, and then there are very rare circumstances um, which in a quaternary center like ours, where there's a high-risk patient has undergone a multidisciplinary evaluation with both surgery and radiation, the patient chooses radiation. You know, again, one of the benefits of surgery is nodal staging, but one of the benefits of EBUS is you can go beyond the mediastinum into the hilum. And so I, I have sent patients back to pulmonary colleagues to do an EBUS, including the hyalolymph node station, so that we can increase our confidence the radiation therapy delivered, assuming, of course, they have an indication for it. Yeah, no, that's super helpful. I mean, sometimes when I talk to the fellows about the evidence for EBUS, you know, in no way to me is EBUS kind of a part of a necessary step in patients that are ultimately going to benefit from resection. I think what EBUS does pretty well that hopefully we don't get to mediastinoscopy is that kind of 10 to 20% chance when you do have multiple stages that you are going to upstage your patient via EBUS, that you are going to, to avoid a thoracotomy that might not help a patient. Um, and so, and th- those are the patients I think about too, like the patients we were discussing before with multi-station N2 that would be resectable, but there may be a 10 to 20% chance that if we sample the N3s, we may unfortunately find disease in those cases. You know, the other thing that we talk about a lot in our own multidisciplinary clinic is biopsies. When do we do them? Do we need to do them? So there are often times when we send a patient to you guys without a pathologic diagnosis, and there are other times where we, we do. We have the, the tissue. Kind of what are your considerations when you think about whether you need a tissue diagnosis before you actually take the patient into the operating room? In the setting in which we practice, I think a pre-treatment t- 
tissue diagnosis is useful for the patient that is heading towards a road of multimodality treatment, oftentimes with a treatment modality other than surgery. I think if patients have large central lesions that require an extensive and radical resection, maybe uh, an advanced resection like a bronchoplastic resection or a radical resection like a chest wall resection and reconstruction where the morbidity is high, it's really useful to know the histology, uh, particularly when counseling a patient about an operation like that. And, and the flip side of that is a small central lesion that really is only resectable by lobectomy. And, and I think that's true in the minimally invasive era. So the, the small central lesions uh, in the open era, we could certainly do intraoperative corneal biopsies, assuming that we could feel them. But in the minimally invasive world of, of thoracoscopy and robots, we oftentimes can't palpate small central lesions um, through the keyhole incisions we make. So those are the reasons we would pursue tissue diagnosis most often. Now, I, I think of a patient has a high suspicion of lung cancer and they're otherwise operable and, and they appear to have early stage cancer and the lesion is peripheral such that it's amenable to a wedge resection, then I don't think they need a tissue diagnosis. And the reason why is that the biopsy won't change management. And, and I have this conversation often with patients, and that is if the suspicion is so high that the biopsy comes back as lung tissue or non-diagnostic, no cancer, we're not going to believe it. And the next thing we'll offer is surgery. And, it, and if it comes back positive for cancer and they've been staged with a CT and a PET and we think they need surgery, well, then the next step is surgery. So it, it doesn't change management. And in those cases, which I actually think are more common than the scenarios that I outlined where we would get tissue diagnosis, I think the most common presentation is one in which that a biopsy is probably not needed. Now, you mentioned our, our team and the team that you lead at the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance Lung Cancer Early Detection and Prevention Clinic. And I think it's worth noting that because again, it's important to be pragmatic. So I, I keep talking about our environment. Well, this, this clinic is a multidisciplinary environment. It's like a tumor board and we have chest radiology, pulmonary and thoracic surgery. And, and we talk about this risk of lung cancer in patients because we certainly do not want to have a high frequency of what ultimately will be unnecessary surgery for benign disease. So I think for, for folks that are not in those environments, you know, there's several options. I mean, it's been shown that clinicians that see a reasonable volume of lung cancer patients have a pretty good ability to use their judgment to estimate the probability. And there are also risk calculators. And, and so I think that high suspicion of lung cancer it certainly deserves a little bit of nuance in talking about because it assumes that someone can make that assessment. And I actually think that most people, I guess I would like to believe, can, could do that if they see a fair volume of uh, lung cancer patients in their practice. Yeah, definitely feel grateful during this entire discussion that we do have the, <laughs> the multidisciplinary clinic format for sure. One other thing that often comes up when I'm talking to fellows about kind of evidence gold standard care and, and why we do certain things is this idea of the scope of the resection. So talking about whether we're going to do a non-anatomic or wedge resection or an anatomic resection, thinking low bar versus sub low bar. I want to hear your perspective. I mean, my understanding of the data is that kind of the gold standard low bar resection comes from pretty old data. And there's a lot more that goes into that decision making around what scope of resection to do for a patient. So this is another topic that comes up 
you know, patients ask a lot, uh, sub-lobar versus lobar. And, and, and lobar resection remains the standard of care in the United States. And it's based on a trial that was done in the 80s, published in the 90s. And, and it basically showed a higher local recurrence rate for the sub-lobar resections. And, and people do oftentimes criticize that study because it's from the 80s and there were no PET scanners. I think one, people, one thing that people gloss over in that trial is randomization occurred after the surgeon had performed a thoracotomy, confirmed intraoperatively the diagnosis of lung cancer, and had done intraoperative nodal staging and ruled out nodal disease. So in some ways, the staging was better in, in that trial than it is in some circumstances in, in the sense that um, it, it's a, it was a lot more invasive. So... Um, but, but there's no question that um, the, the CT scanners back then were not as good. A lot of the diagnoses were made by x-ray. And if you if you look at the size of the tumor in that trial, there I don't remember exactly, but there was something like two or three centimeters. And we all know in the 21st century with the ubiquitousness of CT scan and the quality of it, we're seeing a lot of smaller lesions and, and part solid uh, or ground glass lesions. And so in that way, because our diagnostics have changed over time. That's why I think that trial may not be as relevant. So, so for me, again, I try to think about this practically. So I think about it in terms of anatomy, physiology, oncology, and patient preference. And I always have to have a little heuristic for myself to keep it straight. So anatomy really refers to not only the, the location of the tumor, but also the size. That sometimes will make it very clear whether a sub-lobar resection is even feasible or not. Then physiology refers to the patient's lung function and and capacity to tolerate a a lobectomy. Some people are just so sick, high-risk patients, they they can't tolerate that. So physiology is another one that sometimes makes it a very simple decision. When I say oncology, I refer most often to confidence in the operating room, if you're going to pursue a sublobar resection, you've checked hyalur and mediastinal lymph nodes, and there's no evidence of stage two or three disease, and that your margins are clear. And if your margins are clear and, and your intraoperative nodal staging is negative for carcinoma, then sublobar um, has a reasonable chance at being an efficacious operation. Then in oncology, I've referred to several other scenarios that come up as well. One is, I'm happy to say, over time as a field, we're doing a better job taking care of lung cancer patients. But that means that some people are presenting with new primary lung cancer. So if they've had prior lung cancer therapy, sometimes you need to entertain a sublobar approach. With the scans that I've talked about showing a lot of incidental nodules and part solid nodules, we're finding more and more people with multiple synchronous primaries. And in that case, um, there really has to be an eye towards parenchymal preservation uh, because there's no way to surgically treat all those tumors. So it's either sublobar resections or some sort of multimodality treatment with radiation. And then there, there's one other category in which sublobars uh, uh, would be um, particularly useful to think about from an oncologic perspective is these people that have had slow growing nodules and, and also those with part solid or, or pure ground glass um, that maybe have grown or have a slight bit of new density in them that uh, you know, a, a multidisciplinary team decides, hey, this person needs treatment Sublobar is likely to be efficacious from an oncologic perspective in that case as well. 
And then the, the last thing I think about is patient preference. You know, there, there are definitely patients, often one or two standard deviations away from the average where their, their situation is particularly unique. I'm thinking about a, a very young and active person who is, is putting um, a lot of value, not only on cure from cancer and prolonged survival, but also quality of life. And so um, as an example of a, a patient has a small tumor in the superior segment, and they're really young and they're really active, that might be a, a place where speaking about the trade-offs between local control, pulmonary function, and, and something that people don't often talk about, the operative risk is a useful conversation. I throw in operative risk because the operative risk is proportional to the extent of resection, far more so than the incisional approach. So these are the factors that I use, anatomy, physiology, oncology, and patient preference to help guide that conversation about sublobar versus lobar. You know, one of the things you hinted, this is a nice segue to the next question, is this idea of the physiology of the patient, that not everybody can tolerate kind of the resection you may want to give them. But when you're thinking about not just the scope of the resection, but whether they're a resection candidate, what are really the factors that you're considering for the patient in front of you of whether they are a, you know, potentially eligible surgical patient? I know it's not completely a black and white issue, but maybe even talking about the things you consider and, and where are the nuances? I think the two biggest factors are pulmonary function and functional status. And we routinely get pulmonary function tests on resection patients, and we pay particular attention to the FEV1 and the DLCO. And both me and my partners have a pretty uniform view on this, and that is that based on the extent of resection, we estimate the postoperative predicted FEV1 and DLCO. And if both those parameters are above 40%, then we consider them resectable. And, and that's how we approach pulmonary function. Functional status, I think about patient's ability to walk postoperatively and participate in incentive spirometry, because those are the two things that we can do to mitigate the risk of pulmonary complications and venothromboembolism. And so if a patient's functional status is compromised, it's not to say that not an operative candidate, but it does increase their risk of having complications or even recovering from complications should they occur. Um, so that, that functional status is particularly important. You know, one factor that I selectively investigate, but it is a non-starter for an anatomic, you know, low bar or higher resection is, is pulmonary hypertension. And the way I think about that is someone have a risk factor for pulmonary hypertension, for instance, OSA, do they have enlarged, uh, do they have an enlarged pulmonary artery on the imaging by chance, or it's that patient that shows up that has outstanding pulmonary function tests, but they report a lot of dyspnea, and I don't know why. Mm -hmm. um, so in those patients, I would look for a cardiopulmonary vascular reason for the dyspnea, and, um, and that would enter in the decision-making. And pulmonary hypertension is generally a non-starter. In highly select cases with lots of preoperative counseling, uh, I think sublobar resections can be entertained in these, uh, in these patients with some mild pulmonary hypertension. As far as cardiac testing, I don't do that routinely. I follow the AHA guidelines for that. And fortunately, the, you know, we're not getting referred patients with decompensated heart failure or unstable angina. So it's very rare that, that I think about preoperative cardiac testing as informing a resection candidate. And then you know, the thing that often I hear about is aging comorbidity. And, and basically, my view on that is aging comorbidity alone are not contraindications at all. 
octogenarians does not rule out surgery on a long list in the past medical history does not rule out surgery. It, it gets back to the systemic impact on the patient of the, of the comorbid conditions or the impact of age on functional status that are more important than, than the actual age or comorbidity itself. One of the things that I think is confusing for our trainees, I know, is that the guidelines, some of them are quite algorithmic. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about utility of particular testing. You know, there are some guidelines out there like the ACCP that kind of outlines these step-by-step guidelines and doing functional assessments like stair climbs and shuttle walks and some patients getting CPAT. You know, my impression of those guidelines is they're trying to make sure that if you do fall into a higher risk group by your pulmonary function test, that we're not automatically excluded you, that we're giving you a chance to kind of rule back in by your actual functional status to be a surgical candidate, which is some some stuff I heard from you about kind of not necessarily disqualifying a patient because of a lot of things. When you think about the actual testing you practically do beyond the routine PFTs, can you go into a little more detail about when you need certain tests? I think one that comes up a lot that I want you to talk about is kind of the VQ scan or kind of a quantitative VQ scan and when that plays a role. Yeah, so um, if we're entertaining a pneumonectomy, I would get a standard VQ scan because I think that gives pretty good information. We're really fortunate to have a nuclear medicine test called a SPECT-CT, which can give us an, an assessment of perfusion at the low bar level. And I don't routinely order these tests, but I I will order them for high-risk patients. Sometimes I order them for patients with really large tumors, tumors that are so large that they essentially uh, eliminate the parenchyma of the lobe or consume the parenchyma of the lobe. Because oftentimes if a patient like that has pulmonary function tests and and they're hovering around 40%, well, that might actually be a, a close approximation of their postoperative predicted because that tumor is so large, it's already taken out the function in, in that lobe. Um, but the SPEC-CT gives me a little bit more confidence in, in making that assessment. Another application of SPEC-CT or, or patients with severe emphysema, for instance, if there's an upper lobe tumor and there's a huge concentration of emphysema in that upper lobe compared to the other lobes, then it, it leaves on the table the option of a low bar resection in, in someone who might otherwise appear to have poor lung function. Extrapolation from lung volume reduction surgery uh, on a routine basis, I don't do, but the concept is there that in, in highly select patients with upper lobe predominant emphysema that have lung cancer, that extrapolation allows me to feel more comfortable to do a resection in a marginal candidate. So again, th- those are selective tests in addition to routine PFTs. And, and I think the other thing I would say, I mean, you mentioned algorithms and, and stair climbs and shuttle walks, and I think these are all tools. I, I don't use those ones routinely, and I couldn't argue for superiority, inferiority, or non-inferiority of any of those. But I, I, I think Again, this gets at the issue of you'd want to work with a surgeon that does a lot of pulmonary surgery. And anytime there's a patient who you're, you're starting to think about these other ancillary tests that go belong pulmonary function tests, because either the lung function test is bad or, or the symptom profile is bad, then I think, you know, getting radiation oncology involved is, is also useful. Um, I have clinic on Thursdays and one of my radiation oncology, uh, thoracic radio oncology uh, colleagues has clinic on Thursday too. So so 
for these high-risk patients that they were doing all these tests, we'll oftentimes have the patient meet with both thoracic surgery and thoracic radiation oncology so that they can hear both sides of the perspective. I, I know we're, I'm now talking about treatment, but I, I often think about diagnostics as not being divorced from treatment. They're, inter, they're, they're, they're intimately intertwined. And so in addition to getting the tests, I think I would expose the patient to the perspectives of the two treatment providers as well. I think one question I have for you kind of leading off of that is I think based on the perspective of, of, of kind of the patients that we see, we have different ideas about what comorbidities kind of in our own practice frame give us the most pause of doing any type of treatment. And I, you know, I've heard you talk about pulmonary hypertension a number of times, and maybe you could elaborate on the biggest concerns you have about um, resection in the face of pulmonary hypertension and maybe some specifics. And then are there other specific conditions that a patient might have or results on testing that might be, you know, the most concerning to you in taking a patient to an operating room? I think so the, the issue with pulmonary hypertension is that if the way I think about it is if they have moderate to high pulmonary hypertension and I perform a low bar resection, then basically I have acutely increased the pulmonary pressures by taking out some of the area which that blood flows through. And that acute increase in, in the pulmonary pressures can strain the right heart. And, and in theory, it could lead to right heart failure and even on table death, which fortunately I've never had. I've never seen, but I, I've certainly heard about in my training that, you know, pulmonary hypertension is, is particularly scary and one should be on the lookout for it. Now, in those patients that have borderline pulmonary hypertension, it, it may be that it's not as dramatic as I just described in the sense that it's not going to be an acute event, but by removing some of the pulmonary arterial bed out of the circulation, if the pressure goes up over time, then the patient develops the symptoms of worsening pulmonary hypertension and right heart failure, which it can be challenging to manage and it can lead to a real decrement in quality of life. So in, in those patients, if where I approach them is that it's, it's either going to be radiation or maybe in highly select cases in a well-informed person, a sublobar resection. But that's, that's the one that stands out as essentially prohibitive risk of lung resection for me. Fortunately, we don't see that patient population with unstable arrhythmias, uncompensated heart failure, unstable angina, a lot of the things that would prompt preoperative cardiac testing. But as I think about, you know, resection, if someone's recently had a, a myocardial infarction and they're on dual antiplatelet therapy that, that really can't be interrupted, that, that's another one that takes a lot of thought. Uh, of course, they have cancer, but they also have cardiovascular disease and, and they're in this fresh period where they're at higher risk of cardiovascular events. So those, those are, again, times when I enlist the help of cardiologists, you know, radiation oncology and and I try to give the patient as much perspective from different providers so it's not hanging on the, on the hat of one person's views. These are complex issues. Um, and then, I mean, in terms of other comorbidities, again, they, they don't take resection off the table, but they certainly make us think about whether we should pursue an alternative like radiation. And, and, and again, it links mostly to functional status, but it, it also could be the medications that are used. Sometimes there's some really exotic medications that can in, interfere with wound healing and, and increase the risk of infection. And, and these are also considerations where we'd at least have a conversation about uh, surgery versus radiation oncology. But those are uncommon, to be honest. Fortunately, at least 
within the world that I see referred to me, there's not a lot of um, things that end up um, being um, absolute contraindications to surgery. But I'm, I'm also acutely aware that's a referral issue. I, I know there are sicker patients out there that we never see as surgeons. You know, the kind of final question I wanted to, to talk to you about is, is again, thinking that most of our listeners are pulmonologists. What, what really is their role in evaluating a candidate for surgery? You know, you kind of talked about, I may not even see some of the patients. So what is the role of kind of the referring pulmonologist versus aspects that are really best left to you as the person's going to be operating on the patient? Yeah, I mean, I think lung cancer diagnosis, staging, and preoperative testing can, can be done collaboratively between pulmonary medicine and thoracic surgery. And that's certainly what we do. And the exact nature of that relationship and, and the individual responsibilities that folks assume is probably going to vary from practice environment or across practice environments. And I think that's okay as long as it's a, it's a tight-knit team and there's really great communication and it's pretty clear who owns what component of the lung cancer continuum when it comes to this diagnosis, staging, and, and preoperative physiologic testing. I do think ultimately operative candidacy needs to be left up to the surgeon. And, and what I think that means is that pulmonologists should have a low threshold to refer to a thoracic surgeon. And the other side of the coin, of course, is that thoracic surgeons should be more than willing to see patients who are marginal or even prohibitive if there's any uncertainty from the pulmonologist's perspective. And so the, in this, so the surgeon needs to be open to seeing these patients and assessing them. And again, I, I would bring in a radiation oncologist into the fold here too. I think that if a person is clearly high risk, then, then seeing a surgeon and a radiation oncologist benefits the patient um, they, because they get both perspectives. So uh, I, I think the main message is that patients benefit from a cohesive team just as much as they do from the actual diagnosis staging and preoperative testing. And since there's overlap between our two fields, I, I think it can be done. Either person can do all components or some of those components. It's just whatever makes sense in the practice environment. I, I realize the, as you've mentioned before, the audience is, is not necessarily a quaternary academic cancer center. So it, it's, it's going to probably vary in that okay. I think that's really all the questions I had, Farhood, but kind of my summary takeaway was, you know, in learning a lot from you around this issue is like we do at our center, a lot of careful attention really needs to be paid to this idea of making an efficient and appropriate treatment plan that's really individualized to the patient. I think we kind of hit on that at every question, you know, considering things like stage, particular comorbidities, functional status, PFTs, all these other things, that these issues certainly are really not black and white. So I, I think that's why we continue to return to this idea of a multidisciplinary discussion around the patient as an individual kind of um, factoring all these different aspects into the treatment decision. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, again, trying to be pragmatic, it may not be that there is a multidisciplinary clinic, but um, certainly on an ad hoc basis with the relationships that pulmonologists and thoracic surgeons form out there, I mean, each of those can be ad hoc multidisciplinary visits. So even if it doesn't have the label of a clinic or the or actual physical space or a, a Zoom conference for it, I, I still think it can be done in multiple settings. So I, I agree with the idea of individualization. I think that's great. Well, Farhood, thanks so much for joining me today. I hope our listeners will really enjoy this podcast. And I definitely learned a ton. Thank you, Maddie. Thanks for having me.